Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Then they brought to Jesus a demoniac who was blind and mute, and he cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. And all the crowds were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. He knew what they were thinking, Jesus did, and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then uh, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. The word of the Lord. I was thinking through this text and this trying to decide uh, what is good or evil, what is God's liberating power or what is corrupt and what is right or wrong. And I'm wondering how recent, how long ago has it been that, that we've really had to wrestle with, is this good or bad? Is this right or wrong? Should I do this or not? Not just should I make this decision, but is it good to do this or not? And I wonder if you were last considering what was a good thing to do or not, uh, how did you consider it? Were you up there writing pros and cons lists? Were you uh, spending the night in prayer? Like, how did you discern, oh, is this a right thing for me? Is this good or not? Uh, maybe, like many others, uh, you've gone on to Google or to YouTube and you've searched in, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank? And you've been curious of, how do I discern what is right or wrong? Uh, and there's so many things for us to wonder about. I think, though, we kind of just get comfy and we kind of get, uh, you know, at ease, and so we aren't always so curious. Uh, but one of the things that I learned at, at Marquette University was uh, how quickly every classroom discussion and theological conversation quickly ends up back into sexual ethics. Like, wait, what? We were talking about this verse. How did we get here? But suddenly every question became about birth control or divorce or abortions or same-sex marriage or celibacy of priesthood. Or It's quick how, how, how we can just rush to uh, hot topic discussions. Um, but many people aren't actually in there wrestling with those questions. Uh, they've already made up their mind and they're just frustrated by those on the other side of these questions, but when have we actually been trying to take the temperature of what God's sayings and belief is for our lives? And so uh, we are all trying to discern what is good, what is evil, how should we follow God? 
And I think it's, it's much more complicated than we often uh, will admit because there are times where we have clear data, where things are easily measurable and yet we will still disagree. I will make a, a small surface level conversation connection on that front. How do you feel for those who are in the space? Does it feel warm? Does it feel cold in here? How does the room temperature feel? Every single person in the space will have slightly different uh, ways of talking about that temperature. Uh, wherever you are in your room, if you're worshiping with us at home and you've got family members, you might disagree about the temperature. You might be in kind of thermostat war with whoever you live with. Um, but it's the same temperature, but how does it feel? How does it make you feel? How do you respond to it? What does it make you go do? Uh, can be very different. And part of that is uh, our anatomy. Part of that temperature gauge is just natural to us. We are warm-blooded humans, which means our body wants to keep the same temperature. We really want to be somewhere around 98.6. Um, and so our bodies, we've got to put more stuff on when it gets cold. We've got to take things off, get fans going when it's hot. Uh, because our bodies want to find that, that natural average temperature. And we know, though, that not all creatures are that way. Some creatures can experience temperature very different than us. They're not trying to get to 98.6 or something like that. Uh, you think about cold-blooded, maybe reptiles or amphibians, and they'll just naturally go to the temperature of their space. And so they, uh, they regulate their bodies in a very different way than ours, so their, their temperature experience is different. And you've probably heard the illustration about a frog in a pot being boiled and it not realizing that it's boiling until it's too late. Uh, that's actually a fictitious story that we've all been told. <laughs> Uh, it's not actually true, but uh, we get the idea that a, a frog who's acclimating itself to a temperature, um, we get that kind of concept that maybe they won't notice the temperature change as much. Uh, they certainly are not as jumpy about temperature change as us warm-blooded humans are. But what I would suggest is, is many of us are spiritually cold-blooded, that we don't actually take a lot of consideration into trying to figure out how to regulate ourselves. We just kind of find the room temperature of whoever we happen to be around, and we tend to acclimate to that temperature. Um, though if you get to a room that is too far off of your, where you're at, maybe that startles you and you don't find yourself kind of fitting in, and maybe you leave. But we're social people. We want to find a place that we fit and so maybe we are just so used to just kind of having that gut feeling right or wrong, and we don't really question or ask, is this good or not? And so we enter into a text in which somebody uh, who has some very different sensory capabilities uh, is going to be healed, and there's going to be a whole lot of discussion about what is God actually doing in this world? What good thing or bad thing is actually happening in this story? And so Jesus uh, was not one to just fit into the room temperature of his environment. He caused a lot of trouble uh, to the system, and sometimes that was a good trouble, right? It's, the system needed some shaking up. And so Jesus shows up, and he always uh, provides a picture uh, that is greater than whatever we've limited ourselves to. And so in Matthew 12, we hear about this man who, who is unable to see uh, he, the, Matthew describes him as being uh, blind and mute. Um, and so he couldn't see, he couldn't speak. And one of the things that we tend to assume 
that when the Bible says someone couldn't speak, we often assume that there's probably some hearing problems too, uh, because often it's hard to speak when you can't hear as you try to regulate your own voice, as you try to uh, mimic the way that others speak. Um, but here's a man who can't speak, he, he can't uh, see, maybe he can't hear. Uh, and the text, though, adds that there's another dimension, another element uh, that we can't see, that none of us in the room would be able to see, that is uh, oppressing him. Now, our NRSV translation calls this man a demoniac. Some translations would say that he was demon-possessed. Some would say that he was demon-oppressed. All some sort of way of talking about uh, some sort of spirits that are oppressive and, and harming this man. And so this man that Jesus sees in front of him is, is suffering, and it says just very simply in this text that Jesus healed him. And I feel like we, we, we should often wonder, man, gospel writers, couldn't you give me something more here? I would have loved to hear more about what's happening in this moment, um, but it actually just takes the healing very for granted of just, yeah, Jesus can heal this man, and he's healed, he's made whole, it's not just a physical thing. There's a spiritual dynamic to it. The man is made whole and he's lifted out of his spiritual oppression. He is lifted out of, uh, of whatever has ailed him. And this should be the part of the story that we leap for joy, that we celebrate. Salvation is here. Healing is here. For anyone who has struggled with vision, uh, you can celebrate of like, what would it be to have clarity of vision? If you've struggled to hear, struggled to speak, what is it to feel like you had this moment of clarity, of, of wholeness? If you felt uh, the oppression of addiction or any sort of thing that you feel like you can't get out of, if you've been let free from that, uh, of the great joy and celebration of that moment. And the crowds that are there have a very interesting reaction. Uh, they ask a question in this text. They say, can this man be the son of David? And I feel like the spiritual uh, temperature of, of church life, of like if you've grown up in church, you hear that question, you probably just gloss over it. Don't ask a second question about it. Like, wait, why is healing this man, why is exercising the demons of this man, why on earth does that make him a son of David? Like we just kind of take those, those thoughts of, well, I put that title on Jesus, so of course, of course they've recognized it. But like what in the story would make him son of David? And I think, when we use that phrase, maybe you remember David as king, and so we think kingly uh, titles, that it's saying Jesus is Lord or king in that kind of way. But there's actually probably something very uh, surprising and interesting going on in this text, um, something that you wouldn't get just reading your Bible, but in that culture, in that first century culture, in their climate that they would see. Um, and that's the king of, uh, you know, son of David, Solomon, literal son of David. Uh, King Solomon, outside of the biblical tradition, became known as a exorcist, as one who got rid of demons, as a part of his wisdom and skill, became one who knew how to throw demons out. And that might feel weird to you if you're reading through the Old Testament, like, I'd never seen that. Um, but we'd see signet rings, and maybe they would have things written on bowls where uh, people would use Solomon as like a good luck charm to talk about, please keep demons, please keep evil away from me. And so I actually have a quote uh, from first century Jewish historian Josephus. 
uh, who, when talking about Solomon, uh, talks to this tradition. Uh, He says, Now the wisdom which God had bestowed on Solomon was so great that it exceeded the ancients. God enabled him to learn that skill which expels demons, which is a science useful and sanative to men. He composed such incantations also by which distempers were alleviated. And he left behind him the manner of using exorcisms by which they drive away demons, so that they can never return. And this method of cure is of great force unto this day. So it's an interesting little glimpse of first century Jewish historians saying, hey, uh, people in our time thought, think that Solomon was a great exorcist who casted out demons, and he gets invoked, his method gets used. People still right now are using that to try to rid themselves of evil spirits. And that makes a little bit more sense of why Jesus in this story heals a man who's said to be demon-possessed, and, and the people are like, wait, is this a son of David? Uh, Is this one like Solomon? Is this a king with great wisdom who might be a unifying force? A king where the temple is built up in his time? And so while they're marveling and wondering about who is this Jesus that's in front of them, um, I want to point out that in our spiritual climate, it can be a little bit more confusing because we're like, maybe maybe you don't just identify people as demon-possessed around you as often. Some people do, but like, Uh, That's not kind of the spiritual climate that is typical in our day. Um, But I I think maybe last week's discussion from uh, Jamin, who was here and and preached with us last week, might be a useful connection point in this series to talk about uh, there is the image of God and then there's the image of things that we, we give power to that are less than God of what are the things that we lift up as idols, like the golden calf in the story in Exodus of like, uh, that calf had no power, but that it was given a power by the community that is corrupting of the whole community. And so maybe you can remind yourself of a time in your life where you've uh, given too much power to something. Maybe it's something you wanted to buy. It's like, man, if I had that thing, I, life would be great if I just had that thing. And the next thing you know, you are enslaved to this thing. This thing that you think will bring you joy is actually a thing that's, that's frustrating your life. And then you get it, and it's not actually what you wanted it to be, and it can't live up to being God. And as much as we individually make idols that we fill with power, uh, corrupting power, we do this collectively. We collectively come together and give power to things less than God that end up enslaving us that we don't even know how to get out from under. And you could think about, um, you know, in, in this last year of, of personal freedom, which can be a great thing, but also can become an idol of if I care so much about my own personal freedom that I don't care about my neighbor, uh, that becomes a corruptive force. But you think about so many things that we collectively can be a good thing about. I want safety and security, but then I, I, I make too much of it and it ends up harming somebody. Of We collectively make these systems that aren't perfect, and then we don't know how to, how to get out of that, per, that imperfect system. And so we actually know what it is to live in hell on earth. And that's the way that Jesus kind of talks about hell is they point and an actual place outside of Jerusalem, Gehenna, and it's like a trash heap. It's a place that you burn trash, and uh, that you take your trash to, like, well, we got to have a clean society. Let's get rid of things. Let's cast things out. Let's burn things up. And you can imagine the, 
uh, you know, the landfills that maybe that you've seen. And Jesus points at those kind of things like, that's what hell is, is, is you might have been cast out and pushed aside and burnt up. And, and we've all experienced being ostracized or being oppressed. And, and what is it to feel the oppression of powers and control that discard you and that don't uh, give you life? And so in this story, we have a man who has felt oppression and Jesus liberates that man. Jesus heals that man. This man has run out from his own personal Gehenna, his own personal hell. And some people are amazed and they are celebrating and curious about what on earth is happening here. And some people are judgmental. And isn't that so reality mirroring? Like the Bible is not sugarcoating things. Like that is just real. One person's celebration. I can see, I can hear, I can, uh, I am free is somebody else's cause for judgment. And I think about like the boldness of how much we offer judgmental feelings and, and words towards people. Uh, and, I, and I can't help but think about when I think about boldness, I'm reminded about uh, a, a person I knew in college who was that person that like on their first visit to your house would feel perfectly comfortable getting food out of your pantry? You know that, that person that you, before you've even said, hey, make yourself at home, they are making themselves at home. And now I want you to picture we're in dorms. There's no kitchens. We have just, you know, you've got a bedroom and a bathroom. And uh, he shows up in, in, in this other person's room. And he doesn't just go get food. He makes cereal. And that's a little bit invasive because that means I had to find a bowl of yours. I had to find a spoon of yours. I had to find milk of yours. I had to find cereal. And like, I'm making a mess that you get to clean up later. And you're like, wow, like that's, that's a bold move there. Uh, and, and one day he walked into their, their room without any word and just changed their thermostat. And you're like, wow, that, that's pretty bold that you not only feel like you recognize what should be the ideal temperature, but I'm going to take that under my own power. And let me fix your room's climate. Uh, but there's a way that the, uh, the Pharisees in this story are being that kind of temperature police that they're just so certain. They know how the world works. They need everybody else to catch up with, with of course, the way that, that they understand it works. And they would quote scripture. They would quote all sorts of things to be able to defend their position. But these first century religious leaders um, hear about this story and they slander Jesus. They talk about um, him in a way that maybe you wouldn't expect. Uh, they actually accuse him of being a magician. You might not quite notice that in the text. Um, but there's only a few ways to understand how does Jesus heal someone. Because they assume he healed somebody in the text. Either he's a doctor and he's giving medicine. He's a miracle worker and God is doing something through him. Or he's a magician using some dark power. You shouldn't mess with those spirits. And they accuse him of going to the ruler of the devil, the devil kind of imagery, the demon leader, and using that person to bring healing to this story. That it can't actually be God working through you. It is some demon at work. And specifically, they name that demon. 
They say Beelzebul, which has um, got a kind of history around, um, one, the name Baal. If you kind of hear that, Beel. Baal of like the Old Testament Canaanite god. Uh, but this kind of Canaanite region had this, this, this name that meant master of the house or lord of the house. And the Jewish people often kind of ridiculed that name by saying uh, Beelzebub of the master or the lord of flies. You've probably heard that because of literature and film. Uh, but they're saying, hey, you're using this, this, this demonic power to bring healing to this man because God is not actually with you. And Jesus finds this answer quite absurd. He's like, this doesn't just logistically make sense. Like, why would, uh, why would demons cast out demons from each other? Like, you're just tearing down your own kingdom. Uh, it makes no sense. Uh, but maybe consider for a moment that you have your own exorcist. How do they heal people? And he doesn't, like, act like those exorcists aren't able to heal people. But he says, you have exorcists. How do they heal people? But if you might entertain for a moment that maybe God is actually doing miracles, while you're saying that the devil is at work, you are pointing at what God is doing, that God's kingdom is actually at hand. God's kingdom is here. God is liberating us. And yet you're calling that evil. You're calling God's kingdom evil. And so he gives this story, which I think makes a whole lot more sense when you talk about Beelzebul, of master of the house, of what happens if you've got a strong man who has many possessions, and if I need to plunder this person, this bandit who has control and power, I first must tie up the strong man, and then I can liberate. And so he talks about the, the evil forces of this world as being tied up, that the kingdom is at hand, and that liber, liberty and and uh, oppression is being overthrown and freedom is, is ringing out in this world through God's kingdom. And it's not that God's kingdom will come and that Jesus is a herald of what will be, but Jesus is announcing what already is. And that is celebratory news. That is good news. And yet, the Pharisees just don't see it that way. They see God's work and call it evil. They're just used to uh, being able to make that decision, that gut reaction, not having to go learn about it for themselves, not go ask more questions, not go find out, go talk to Jesus, but just throw off accusations that it's actually evil at work. And it's in that context of this spout about uh, is God working through Jesus or not? Is God healing these people or is it some other evil force, that Jesus says something that actually creates a lot of anxiety in our church tradition, in our history. Uh, many people have fretted over these words when Jesus says, therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Of like, if you get a verse that says you will not be forgiven if you do this thing, obviously it creates a level of anxiety for people of, wait, how do I make sure I don't do that thing? And so, uh, I, I want to read a quote to give you how weighty this has been for people. Uh, there's a, a commentator, he's a Swiss uh, biblical studies scholar, uh, who has like a three-volume commentary. They're talking about like those exhaustive, like 
like wrote a whole lot more than you expect someone could write on a book. Three-volume commentary on Matthew. And on this text, here's what he says. I would like to criticize this saying, and he's talking about the quote from Matthew 22 there. On the basis of the history of interpretation, it produced scarcely any fruit of love. I do kind of like that language of wondering of what love, what good thing has come from our text. He goes on. In personal interpretations, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit too often became the instrument with which a strong, religiously characterized superego killed a weak ego. In my judgment, with this saying, the negative consequences outweigh its positive potential. I personally would not choose it as a sermon text except for a sermon against the text in the service of examining its consequences. Uh, What he's just noting is how often people have used this text about um, blaspheming the Spirit as a way to end up oppressing people again, Um, oppressing their position, their stance, their belief, or whatever it is. And that fear that you are outside of the church has caused a lot of anxiety and harm. And so I want to point out something that I think maybe might bring a little bit of better understanding, not necessarily solve all of our challenges, but a better understanding of how do I determine what is good and evil and how do I make sense of this blasphemy of the Spirit. I think that many of us, because of our spiritual, social climate temperature, we as Westerners tend to give a lot of very heightened individualistic readings to everything that we read. We just think about everything as personal. And so I've got a bunch of quotes, but I'm just going to limit it to one of kind of as an example of the way people have understood this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. One person said, the only unpardonable sin is refusing to let God pardon you. That's how most interpretation of this blasphemy of the Spirit goes, is it's all about you, uh, about what God wants to do for you and your response to what God wants to do for you. But that isn't actually the context of this scene, of this story. Uh, When Jesus brings this up, he's not warning them about their acceptance of grace and good news for themselves. He's warning them about rejecting grace for other people, that God is liberating other people and they're like, that's not God, that's actually evil, that that they're seeing what God is doing and making that a, a force of oppression instead of a force of liberating good. And so what is it, if, if we maybe understood this text, and what is it to blaspheme the Spirit to say? What is it to declare that, e- that God's ways are evil or that God's love is evil? If you do that, if you take that route that they take in the story, what you end up doing is in the midst of an age that corrupting forces still are trying to hold on, you call God's liberation and God's good news bad news. That people's freedom from oppression, people's freedom from whatever has enslaved them, if you call it bad news, uh, you are counter to the very gospel. You are counter to what is happening in the world. And it's not just about you. We love to make it just about us. But it's not just about, hey, be careful about how you respond to God. But like if you are flying in the face of what God is doing in the world, you are causing harm to those around you. You are becoming adversaries to God's liberating power. You are becoming forces of evil, causing harm to people. 
And so how often do people in this world experience God's love and liberation and freedom only to find that there are Christians still very ready to condemn them? Like that's what Jesus is getting to in this story of like the celebration moment. You are free. And this person that has realized God's identity uh, for themselves, that they are a child of God, that they are, uh, that they are forgiven, that they are healed, and looking at that person and saying, that person's messed up. I'm not worshiping with that person. They clearly don't understand God. And that is what's so destructive. That's what the warning call is about. Because uh, if the warning call was just simply, like, make sure you say yes to God, um, that's just always a warning call. But be careful about being so quick to see somebody and they might actually be liberated and free by God and you are going to call them still oppressed, still enslaved. And so uh, we are all in the position of trying to figure out with our eyes, with our ears, with our spirits, where is God at work in this world? Right? So that we don't end up becoming like the Pharisees in the story that we see somebody and we just assume that they are God forsaken. Uh, and we, we hinder ourselves from being a part of God's liberation. And I think about the early church, who we don't appreciate how challenging uh, the post-Easter story is for them. Like, they're having to figure out how to reread their Bibles. They're having to try to figure out how to reread, like, what they eat, what's their diet. They're having to figure out, wait, who's involved? Like, who's in this kingdom and it's expanding? Like, they're reeling, trying to figure out what does God love, what is good, what is clean. And that experience was transformative and was life-giving to them, and it was not easy. Uh, we get stories in Acts, we get stories of Paul's letters in which the church really wrestled with this question. How do I know what is good and what is evil? And so I want to invite you to be on that journey of reflection, of reminding yourself, wait, what is the temperature in my space? Of like, wait, what is going on around me in the world? What are, maybe there's some things that I assumed were, were awful that they might be. But maybe there's something that God is doing in the midst of things that we need to reflect on and need to see afresh. Uh, I think in this week I can't hear about this story without thinking about the forces of oppression at work uh, that made their way into Atlanta as that man uh, murdered, uh, I think it was eight individuals. You know, that, that person grew up in a church and was taught some things that led down a very destructive path. Uh, he was taught that his world was a battle scene uh, where there were enemies and where I need, to, um, I need to overthrow my enemies. And those enemies weren't just temptation thoughts. Those became individuals. And so in his corrupted viewpoint of the world, uh, he needed to rid himself of enemies around him and was unable to see children of God around him, human beings with life stories uh, who God might be working in the midst of. And when we face kind of the national grief of these kinds of moments where people do violence and do harm, 
Uh, hopefully we can take a little moment to look around at those around us, to look around at the language we use about people, and to reflect on who have I demonized that maybe actually God is working in the midst of and I shouldn't just discount. And so maybe today you might uh, think about yourself as that man healed in the story. May you think and ask God of like, hey God, give me fresh eyes to see. Whether that's physically uh, or spiritually. Give me eyes to watch for how God, how you are moving in the world. Give me a fresh sight so I can see what you've made good and what you've made holy. Give me eyes to see what you love. May we also look for fresh ears to hear, to give a willingness to listen, to learn, to hear people's stories, not to just discount people at first glance. You know, the the Pharisees weren't there for that initial miracle, but they were unable to listen to good news. And maybe, maybe we've struggled to hear good news around us. Maybe you ask God to give you some fresh ears to hear. May we listen. But may we also find a voice. May we ask for a voice to share, to celebrate what good news is actually going on in the world, that the kingdom is at hand. Not God's kingdom is someday going to come, but God's kingdom is already here, already transforming, has won the victory, even if the last grips of the forces of evil still try to hold on. And so may you feel freedom to celebrate God's love and God's liberation that you've experienced or that you've seen around you. And may you celebrate it Uh, with a boldness, uh, a boldness that is not uh, afraid of what judgment uh, might be waiting for that good news. So may we all seek God's liberating love together. Uh, Would you just join me in prayer? Lord God, we, we come with different stories into this space. Uh, Lord, I know Uh, There are moments in my life, and I'm sure in all of our lives, where we've been quick to be the judgmental uh, figures of the story, where we're quick to assume that we know uh, ultimately always what is right or good, and that that means that there have been moments in our lives where we have been on the wrong side of your liberation and your love for this world. Lord, we ask that you might help us to see afresh the ways that you move. Lord, help us to not only see it, but to want to take part, to want to be about the healing and the freeing of those who are uh, feeling the oppression. Lord, we ask that you might give us words and, and a voice to, to share about uh, your great love in a world that feels so oppressive and so uh, discouraging to so many so often. Lord, help us to champion and celebrate that your kingdom is near, that your love is near, and that this world can be more like heaven. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.